Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daruk people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tungata Whenua of Tafanganiwatara, where I'm recording today. How was your week? Tell me, I know that it wasn't great, but... Yeah, so I've had a really hard week because my dog died on Sunday last week, so the day after we recorded. She was the best dog in the world ever. I've had her since I was 16, so she was 17 years old. And it was 10 days before my trip to Perth, which was a big part of the reason I was going home, was to spend time with her because I knew she was old and probably on her way out because that's just the sad fact of life. So it just felt really cruel to lose her so close to that trip. So unfair. And especially because she wasn't ill. She was perfectly, well, as healthy as you can be as a 17-year-old doggy. She was starting to go blind and deaf. But she was perfectly healthy and perfectly happy. And then on Wednesday, she just started to get sick. And my parents took her to the vet. And it turned out that she, her kidneys were basically failing. And Mm. there was nothing they could really do for her. And so, yeah, we kind of discussed it as a family. And I just thought, like, my dad was like, we can, you know, we can try and keep her alive for you to come and visit. But I just thought that would be terrible. Didn't want want her to suffer so unfortunately yeah she is no longer with us and so it's been a really hard week just dealing with that loss and dealing with also my parents grief and the grief of being far away and a, a tough time Aria was an amazing puppy and I know you miss her she was the best <laughs> I just want to say I really love that your dad was being so generous in that way because that's a hard decision for them to make too but he was like really willing to do that for you which speaks a lot of Mm. his love for you as a kid Mm. and so I just really want to point that out because I think that that's really beautiful well done Mr. V (laughs) and um, I also think it was really loving of you to just be like no no she shouldn't suffer because I would have totally been like no wait for me I'm coming I know and there was a big part of me that wanted to be like no 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 I'll just I'll get on the next flight just keep it keep her going until then but you know I know that she was at her happiest when she was at home with her people and the idea of her being in a vet on her own for weeks or days while she like didn't understand what was happening I just couldn't do that to her and I feel like one of the joys of having dogs is that they get to spend their entire lives with us like how amazing is that for them and we don't get to have them it's never long enough like doesn't matter how long you have them it's never long enough because you love them so much but we also owe it to them to not prolong that kind of suffering like yeah. they give us so much I owed her this I owed her this easy passing it is love to do that so it sucks like it's terrible it does but, suck I'm yeah. sorry it is just life so yeah i'll be going home on friday to an empty house your parents must be so lonely as well yeah and i do think in a way that that's kind of easier for me this week is i don't have the the physical grief like the physical absence of someone of something that you loved because my parents do have that you know she's not at home she's not under their feet she's not there to take for walks. she's not waiting for them when they get home yeah so that's another layer of grief I guess you've already had to miss her in that way I've already had that kind of parting from her when I left home I did have my moment of wonder like off the back of it because I had a couple of friends send me really beautiful bouquets of flowers 
And one of my colleagues at work got me some flowers as well. And there's something just so beautiful about people who understand that this was a member of your family and this is someone, you know, this is a thing that has affected you. And then to have these, I guess, gestures is just really beautiful from people because a lot of people be just like, oh, it's just a dog, just get over it. But it's not. It's not just a dog. Like, okay. If it comes down to between a person and a dog, I'm always going to pick person. But, like, if it's a pet that you love, it's a pet that you love. Yeah. I'm glad that we love the things we love. And I'm glad that you had a wonderful, amazing dog that you got to spend so much time with. I know. I was very lucky. And so much time as well. So, yeah. It was a hard week, but I did have these moments of, like, wonder. How about you? How was your week? Uh, very stressful for a different reason. Um, my daughter went away to camp for the first time and like I didn't do school camp, like it wasn't a thing where I'm from. And I was really struggling with letting her go and be a big almost ten year old doing her own thing. But two things happened that were really wonderful. It was the first thing she did have a good time at camp, but on the first day something happened and a boy pushed her and she was very clear about her boundaries, like no, mm. you can't do that to me. This is my body. And I was just so proud of her. And the principal came up to tell me. I was really proud and relieved that she had stood up for herself and was able to yeah. be so clear and articulate because she's quite sensitive. So I was really proud of that. Um, And the second half of that was though, even though my daughter was away at camp, my son had a birthday. He turned eight this week. Yay. And he wanted a spooky <laughs> birthday in May because Halloween comes in May now too. So we had a pumpkin themed <laughs> birthday with jack-o'-lantern cakes. I drew on a t-shirt for him because he wanted a spooky t-shirt. So I drew a jack-o'-lantern face on a t-shirt and he loved his cake and we had some of the family come over and celebrate with him. And he was over the moon excited. Oh, that's so lovely. Good job. Spooky birthday. Good job parenting. Thanks. Challenging to have that first camp and you've done so well. Thank you. I um, may have like not wanted to let her go when she disembarked from the bus and it disgorged all of her luggage and I carried it all for her. She was like, I can carry that, mom. And I'm like, I've got it, baby. It's okay. I'm pretty ridiculous, I think, but really like my kids. But you both survived. Look at that. Like, and this is the first one. So I think that's the hardest thing was just, it was the hardest thing. So good job. (sighs) I can breathe now. I can exhale. (laughs) A relief. Yeah. This week we're reading chapters 42 to 48 through the theme of solitude. Now, do you have anything to say about solitude? I do. Last year, I was supposed to go to Germany. I haven't had a break from being a full-time parent since like 2016 when we Mm. met in Paris for my birthday. Um, So I was due some like quote unquote annual leave. Now some time ago my friend Bethany issued me a standing invitation that wherever she lived I was welcome to visit. So I've taken her up on that a few times and I have so far followed her to Japan and Virginia and as she was like in her final year of living in Stuttgart I was like I'm gonna come visit but just by myself. I planned to fly over in May of 2020. (laughs) I was really excited about the possibility of hanging out with her and her kids and her husband. He's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. friends-in-law and as the date of my departure like firmed up there was something else that I started to look forward to. I was going to have to fly first to London. That takes 24 hours, which meant I would mm-hmm. be alone for 24 hours. And oh man, I was excited at the prospect of an international flight all by myself. 24 hours, a continuous stretch of time where I would be required to sit and do nothing. There would be nothing to clean. Food would be prepared and served to me. I could read or write or so, or avail myself of any of the number of in-flight entertainment options available to me. I had already planned to kick off a full reread of the Wheel of Time series for my holiday. Like, that was my plan. And I had Mm -hmm. bought the latest season of The Expanse to load onto my little device to watch on the plane, too. I was, like, thinking about the projects in my carry-on bag, and I was planning them more carefully than I was thinking about the entire rest of the trip. Because I just figured I would go and hang out with my friend, and if she wanted to do something, I'd say, sure. Which is how it goes with Bethany. So I was really excited about the solitude of this flight, because for me, solitude is an opportunity. 
and and then it got canceled because of all of 2020 (laughs) yeah and I was disappointed not to see my friends but like I felt personally insulted by the loss Mm. of that time like I was promised a long flight all by myself I was promised the opportunity of solitude and I wanted it um and look being at home for lockdown it wasn't a hardship for me I just wanted to make that clear I'm immensely privileged to be comfortable at home and in a place where the government took measures to protect their citizens right away plus I've said it a million times but I really like my family (laughs) I like having Mm. them around and I know how lucky I am to have them so it wasn't difficult to be here it wasn't extenuating circumstances for me but I also recognize that I don't really carve time out for myself. I rely on the opportunities that I get for solitude, like long flights or train trips. Mm. But all, all of the time that I used to spend traveling was time that I would take for myself because you have long hours and no interruptions and my physical needs are more or less met by other people. Mm. I don't know if I'm going to get on a plane anytime soon. I don't even know if I want to, even though I want to, you know? Yeah. But I miss the opportunity of air travel as a way to experience solitude. Everywhere else, I can be reached. I can be found and people can ask things of me because I'm a resource for most people in my life. Mm. A joyful resource, a giving resource, but like not an infinite one. So I need solitude to replenish. One cannot serve from an empty vessel, but I will just have to figure out another way to get it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I love that. Um, It's something I've often felt about, you know, you see more and more Wi-Fi coming onto planes and people being like, yes, I want to be able to do work on planes and these things. And I really resent that because I love the fact that I can get on a plane and not be contactable. Like exactly like you said, you are out of reach and you have no choice but to just sit. And there is so little space for that in day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. We don't have places like that, really. We're always reachable. So, yeah, I think it makes sense that you would kind of mourn that. And it's not just the fact that you're mourning the solitude, but also it's the anticipation. You had already planned for it. You already anticipated it. And then it's taken away for you. So it's like that disappointment of not looking forward to something. And I think it's very different for people who maybe don't live with a family or especially who don't live with kids who are very needy or tactile. When you don't have people around you all the time who are asking of you like I bet it's really easy to get tired of being alone that's oh, fascinating the way solitude works yeah. and it's something that I was thinking about reading this section as well mm. is this idea is solitude necessarily loneliness yeah, I, ne- I never think of it as bad because I feel like it's a chosen thing. Yeah, I agree. I think solitude is almost, it's a peacefulness. There's a peacefulness that comes from solitude. I think of like walking in the woods on your mm. own or, I don't know, meditation or something. That's more of a solitude, whereas loneliness is a feeling of being bereft of something. Yeah, I was thinking about, because you'd mentioned you used to go on these long walks in London. Mm. And I was thinking that that's a kind of solitude as well, when you kind of remove yourself from interaction, but you're still part of everything. Yeah, I do. I still do that a lot. Like, because I put headphones in and I, I listen to music and you so you're in the world but you're not of the world you're mm. not partaking and then I just walk for hours so in this section Laszlo and Sarai get to know each other in his dreams a few terrible truths about Errol Fane are revealed Laszlo offers Sarai the respite of sleep asleep within a sleep and when her nightmares come they work to destroy them so she can rest meanwhile Thion is going to try one more time to make his alchemy work the next morning, Errol Thane, Azarine, and Laszlo brief Shuelan, and Laszlo is distraught to learn that the citizens of Weep also do not know where the many Godsborn children went. That was a hard section. But just when Laszlo at the very end poses the question, like, where are all the babies? And Suhaila's the one who's like, 
we don't know what the gods did with them. Yeah, and it's so interesting because there's this idea that Sarai and the other gods born have this thing that they just wanted to kill the babies because they were so horrified. And I don't think that it's that simple because there's also grief there. They worry about these kids that disappeared. They don't know what happened to these babies. And Errol Fane's reaction to Sarai being alive is also kind of relief because she is still alive. So it's this weird conflict about, yes, being horrified because gods, but also they're their kids. Yeah. And I can't imagine because we get so much more insight into what it was like for Errol Fane to live with Isigal. We get so much more insight in this section about the way that she toyed with him, Mm. making him love her like the purest kind of love but making him do it in a way that was like as Sarai described it a violation Mm. and then he hated her too but that hate only won out when Azarine was brought to the Citadel and had to endure what all the other girls from Weep Endure that was the tipping point for him as long as it was just himself he could live in that balance but as soon as it was Azarine it boiled over into something much worse and he became the god slayer. I thought it was so interesting that Sarai, because we could because she goes into what Isagol does, and there was a point where she kind of described Isagol's power as on page 398, she says, the dread was a pure distillation of fear as any emotion that Isagol had ever made. And it's this idea that Isagol is the goddess of despair, right? Mm. But her power actually allows her to toy with emotions. She doesn't have to create despair. She doesn't have to create fear. Yeah. But that's what she does. It's a power that can go either way. Exactly exactly the same as Sarai's does. And so it's used for torment the way that Sarai used her power for torment. But it doesn't have to be. She doesn't have to do that to people. She doesn't have to be the goddess of despair. She could use that power to create joy and other feelings, but she doesn't. Oh my gosh. I guess I had never thought of it that way. Did catch the bit where Sarai was explaining she could have taken away his hate, but she didn't because she thought it was Mm. funny that it coexisted inside of him. And then that was actually her undoing, right? Because she left it Mm. there and it fed on itself and grew and took over and that was the Mm. like that was it that was the end yeah I just love that kind of parallel between Sarai's power and her mother's power this Mm. idea that it's what we choose to do with power you know it's what they choose to do with their powers that make them good or bad it's not the power that is good or bad yeah and Laszlo even says like what happened you know why didn't they just take the babies and take them down and love them if they had grown up with love Mm. Mm -hmm. wouldn't that have been enough and Sarai's like no you don't understand like the ground here is poison nothing good can grow in it oh yeah he has this great line on page 380 where he said it seemed to him as though fear was a living thing here because it was Sarai kept it alive she tended it like a fire and made sure it never went out Mm. so again it's that kind of like the way that she uses her power oh man it's just a lot It is a lot. And I always forget that they really only get, what, two dreams? Yeah. I mean, this whole section is basically just their dream, right? Yeah. And there's a little bit with Thion and then the breakfast. We should talk about Thion because I don't think he's that (laughs) smart. I just want to be a little bit smug about it because he's like, it's not going to work. I'm just going to go and record my failure and then I'll sleep. (laughs) He's so confident in his knowledge, but he also relies on solitude in order to keep his knowledge secret. Mm -hmm, So there mm -hmm. was a lot of interplay between our main theme and our like theme of the week. His knowledge is so important to him. It is his religion. The scientific Mm -hmm. method, science itself, chemistry, alchemy, that is what he believes in. And he takes stock in it because he knows the properties of matter and he Mm -hmm. knows how the physical world works. So this is going to be like either a crisis of faith, like in the book Contact or the movie, if you haven't Mm -hmm. read the book. I've seen the movie more recently than I've read the book. But the crisis of faith thing is a really big deal in the movie where she goes on this wormhole for like 18 hours, but it's only a second in real time. And I think Thion's about to have the same thing where 
he's going to experience something that's outside the realm of what is provable or believable. Yeah. I think it's interesting because Laszlo is also beyond the realm of what he understands, right? He can't understand Laszlo's motivations. He resents Laszlo for not fitting into the way that he thinks people should behave and for Mm. being so good, right? And he acknowledges that he's grateful to Laszlo, even if he's resentful. And um, I just, I really love that chapter. I thought it was a great example of solitude because it's Thion's solitude and his knowledge of how to make Azoth and it's also his commitment to the process and he's isolated in that and he chooses solitude in order to enact that but a lot of his solitude in his life is sort of self-inflicted like he isolates himself previously in his lab he was just on his own it was his little palace and I think that solitude comes from the expectations he feels that he needs to live up to like what's been put on him the societal expectations of what he's supposed to be and I just love that that line where he says it's unforgivable that Laz has a habit of helping him for no good reason. He just can't wrap his head around it. I'm interested to see how Thion changes. I really want to pay attention when I next read Muse of Nightmares, how Thion's journey changes, because I think that's going to be really important. He needs a hug. He doesn't want a hug, but he needs one. You know what I mean? I just kind of really love that. Like, I really, I really love Thion. I love that he is just like, you know, he has this line where he's like, except for Strange, that is, who knew what he really was. And he hates that. He hates that Laszlo knows him and understands him. He hates being seen. It's just, he's fascinating to me. He refuses to be vulnerable. He just is so resentful of that. I can relate though. Not letting anybody see anything but like the carefully curated outward thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, I think that's very understandable, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and especially if you've been hurt, right? So if you've ever been violated or if you've ever been vulnerable and it's gone badly or you're, you've been raised in a place where vulnerability is weakness, like you can't just mm-hmm. turn that off and suddenly open yourself yeah. up. Like everything he does makes sense, but I do think it's funny when he gets a little bit too big for his britches and then it kind of gets smacked down a lot, which is good for him. It's good for his ego. Yeah, and I really love the description of his terrible little workspace Mm. I just want to give him a window he can just look out of it you know it doesn't have to let anyone else in but it's just again he lives this claustrophobic life through choice Mm. he chooses to be like this he doesn't have to live his life like this he does be so secluded he doesn't have to do any of the stuff but he can't see that he doesn't need to he can't believe that anyone else wouldn't be out to get him or be trying to trip him up and I guess that the terrible thing is that later on this book we know that he does kind of get followed and tripped up so yeah but I don't think that's as much about learning his secret as it is about someone else seeking their own glory mm. I'll, I'll put a pin in that so we can talk about it when it happens because it's like yeah. the pivotal event right yeah definitely I also thought it was interesting thinking about solitude because up until this point there have been a lot of different presentations of solitude in yeah. the story so far I think we've seen solitude through Laszlo he's got a very unique solitude and Mm. kind of when he was living in the library the way he engages with the world he has the solitude as well then Sarai obviously being in the citadel that's the solitude Thion we've spoken about Azarine her solitude the way she goes to this empty house yeah I actually put Thion and Azarine in the same category of people who choose their solitude like for them it's deliberate I think Laszlo if he could have found a family he would have done he he wanted to be part of a community and he wanted to be part of a family but he was sort of trained up in the unwell 
unworthiness of himself. And that stopped him from ever seeking that. Mm-hmm. And so stories became the refuge. That's how he, like, he, he's not solitary because he's with his stories. Whereas Azarine is making a conscious decision not to let anyone else in her life because she's still waiting to be able to share it with Errol Fane. Or maybe she just doesn't want to share it with anyone else if it can't be Errol Fane. Yeah. And Thion just doesn't want to be vulnerable, full stop. And then Errol Fane's solitude is self-inflicted as well. Yeah. I had a lot of thoughts about the fact that they were together and he didn't sleep and Sarai had a little moth watching over him and it actually really stuck out to me that she was relieved that she couldn't see in his dreams because she didn't want to know she didn't want the knowledge of what he thought of her now that Mm. he knew she was alive yeah and then there's Minya Minya's existence is a solitude as well she removes herself from the other gods born she has Mm. this little secret space that only she can access that she goes to yeah absolutely she sits in the solitude of her trauma and I think there's a lot of that for Weep like there's this communal trauma that everyone in Weep shares and their solitude in that as well yeah well they were isolated from the world right so they had kept themselves apart before by like murdering anybody who came across the cusp or or Elmithila Mm -hmm. and like only letting certain things out and they ran their own trade caravans and then mm-hmm. that stopped 200 years ago that was just the end of it so no one really knew how to get in and so yeah. because of their solitude it made them vulnerable to this attack from the Mizartham which it might not have done if they'd been Zosma right? Yeah true absolutely and if we think about solitude as being because there's another definition of it being a lonely or an uninhabited place then the Muthaleth is the most obvious yeah. embodiment of that right? Yeah absolutely um I think we also in this section see the echoes of Laszlo and Sarai's solitude up to this point and now how that's being challenged because they realize they have each other, right? So Mm. they're alone, but they're together. Yeah, for the first time. And I think there's a real shift for Laszlo where he, um, you know, he actually mentions like... I'm going to find this quote because I just love it so much. Okay, here it is. Page 379. He didn't grasp it yet, at least not consciously, but he no longer was alone and he had a whole new set of fears to discover. The ones that come with cherishing someone you're very likely to lose. Mm. And then later when he wakes up after having just barely kissed her, he's so upset. And he said, you know, and like the narrative talks about it was the desolation of having found the place that fits the one true place and experiencing the first heady sigh of rightness before being torn away and cast back into random lonely scatter. <laughs> I marked that one as well. Just that whole section, because there's that bit where he says, you know, Sarai, you must see, I want you in my mind. And that whole page, like on page 404, is all so much about defeating solitude. And it echoes through them both. It's this desperate ache, the ache to be together, the ache to touch, the ache to not be alone and to mm-hmm. be seen and to be understood. Not for who you can be or for what promises you have but for who you are and I think that's what really like stood out to me about both of them they're both so desperate just to be seen it's just beautiful it really is and on page 379 he also says he would recognize this later as the moment his center of gravity shifted from being one of one a pillar alone apart to being half of something that would fall if either side were cut away it's just amazing stick a fork in me I'm done This is why I love Lainey Taylor. Like, she hits all of the right notes, like, with this depth of feeling. Because when I look at it point by point, I'm like, they barely know each other. Like, but this feels genuine, and it also is so quick. It's that thing about it's destiny, right? Yeah. There's other magical forces at play that we don't know about, but that's what's being enacted. Yeah. She isn't used to being seen, so she can travel around as an observer in the entirety of this city, but she's not able to interact, so she has this enforced solitude. And I think as she's literally in solitary confinement right now, thanks to Minya's Mm. ghost army, Minya doesn't understand that she's actually found someone with whom she can connect. Otherwise, she'd have figured out a way to keep the moths in too, because she doesn't want Sarai 
guy out there interacting with other people. Like, it, it ticks her off that yeah. Sarai even has empathy for the humans, much less might be falling for one of them. Yeah, and I actually think that both Laszlo and Sarai, having had this kind of enforced solitude even growing up, you know, mm. both being isolated from the world, Laszlo being tucked away in the library, Sarai being up in the Citadel. Like, she sees bits of life, but she hasn't lived the same yeah. way that Laszlo has read stories, but he hasn't lived. Yeah. And I think that's really a point of connection for them as well, because on page, what is it, 361, when they're talking about the cake, Laszlo says, Laszlo had only marginally more experience with cake than Sarai did. So it was one of the things they had made up between them. It's this thing being like, oh, you don't know, I don't know either. This is a commonality that we have. You know, we're not, we're both as good as each other. Yeah, I loved, I think I underlined a bit where they were talking about the imagination, as Laszlo had previously noted, is tethered in some measure to the known. And they were both sadly sadly ignorant in matters of Kate. And that's on page 362. <laughs> and I thought that was really interesting because that sort of reminded me of the write what you know. Mm, yeah. And I guess it's like imagine what you can imagine. And they, both of their imaginations have been so limited. But because he's had this rich inner world of stories and folklore and like true love and connection and magic, he's able to access that. And because Sarai mm. has seen the whole scope of human experience experience while walking in other people's dreams she's able to imagine herself loving and being loved but neither of them can get to cake it's great because there seems to be constantly this tension between them about you know what is reality what is real what is imagination Sarai says on page 393 was it living if it was a dream and then she answers it later on page 407 when she says everything about this night was true in a way that transcended their bodies so this call and response right being like it's not real it's a dream and then being like but we feel it and therefore it is real yeah I love that I love that conversation that they're having there's a lot in there about soul and spirit and lives that are beyond and above just the physical Mm. which I really love like I love the idea that you can love someone or something so much that it stays with you for longer than they would kind of like Azarine loves Errol Fane right that's just there was this one quote that absolutely broke me. Um, I must find it. Stand by. Oh, page 413. Azarine looked sharply away at that, and in the bleakness of her eyes, Laszlo saw a shade of the anguish of loving someone who doesn't love himself. Man, does that ever hit hard. And yeah, let's talk about Errol Fane, because I have a lot of feelings. Hmm. I really want to talk about how, even though Laszlo now knows like more of the full scope of what Errol Fane did, like he killed babies. He still loves them. Mm. He He's frustrated and he's mourning the idea of the hero he thought he was. But he's not putting it to like, oh, I shouldn't love this person anymore. I shouldn't respect and care for this person. He's just filling in the blanks. And like on page 373, all the things that hadn't quite made sense now shifted just enough. And it was like tilting the angle of the sun so that instead of glancing off a window pane and blinding you, it passed through to illuminate all within. He's starting to put together like this is the reason for the immense grief and the avoidance and not wanting to go up to the citadel without people who'd been there with him and the shame around Azarine. Leslie's starting to get a picture of all of it. But I really love that instead of being like, how could he? He's a bad person. He immediately goes, oh, that's why and clicks it into place. I don't know. I feel like a lot of that has something to do with Sarai telling the story Mm -hmm. because she is so empathetic. And she, even though she is horrified and she still thinks it was the wrong thing to do, the way she conveys the story to Laszlo was done with such grace for Errol Fane and for the people of Weep, right? And that allows Laszlo space to to have that thought, to be like, this is a terrible thing, but I still have room to, to love. And it's kind of the perfect way for him to hear that because he doesn't, I don't see Laszlo as the kind of person who really does well in the black and white, good and bad dichotomous thinking. Like he can't. He can't operate like that. So having that 
nuance. That's really Mm -hmm. where he lives. He lives in the shades of gray. And Sarai does as well. She can't help it. She's just one foot in each world for so long. But Laszlo's been in the beautiful side of that. And she's been in the grief and misery side of that. I absolutely adore Sarai's nuanced understanding of her humanity. The depth of understanding she has. It's so remarkable considering that she is just actually trapped in the Citadel. And she's been exposed to kind of this reckless hate from Minya. Mm. And this terrible history. And she knows. And she knows the reality of what had happened. She lives with it every day. And yet she can just... She can understand and she can see. And I just love that quote on page 372 when she said... Good people do all the things bad people do, Laszlo. It's just when they do them, they call it justice. Yeah, it's a good reminder. It ties in a lot with how Scathis is described when they, because, you know, she has a nightmare inside of Laszlo's dream. Um, And I don't know if I wrote it down, but Scathis is described as being neither handsome nor ugly. And the only thing that really marks him as different is his blue skin and the Mm -hmm. malice burning in his gray eyes. I noted that as well, because I love that this idea that evil can look just like anything. It can just be normal and plain. It doesn't have to be a big, scary monster. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be marked. And it put me in mind of the banality of evil, which is this concept introduced by Hannah Arendt. She wrote a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, which was about the, the trial of Eichmann. And I think she came out in 1964. And it was just this idea that, you know, this man did horrible things that led to the murder of millions of people Mm. banality doesn't mean that his actions were ordinary or even that we're all capable of it but it's the idea that it is motivated by a very common complacency like he was just motivated because he was just doing his job yeah so evil can come in all these forms it doesn't have to be a big bad right terrible things can happen through very nondescript vessels somebody can have views that are really like super not great and also do a lot of other good in their life and like Laszlo has to reckon with Errol Fane you know on page 411 he says when he looked at Errol Fane now what did he see a hero a butcher did they cancel each other out or would the butcher always trump hero did they exist side by side two such Mm. opposites like the love and hate he'd born that's like a lot of people are I mean Walt Whitman said we contain multitudes right absolutely that's what I thought of as well you know it's like do I contradict myself very well then I contradict myself I am large I contain multitudes which is true it's just people can be many things and I think Sarai acknowledges this on page 378 she says you know the curse of my knowledge it was easy when we were the only victims Mm. but because of my gift I've learned that what it's been like for the humans before and since I know the insides of their minds why they did it and how it changed them and I think this is crucial because the humans were impacted by they, what they did. Errol Fane is impacted by what he did. Yeah. If they hadn't been, she wouldn't be able to forgive them. Absolutely. And she's the only one who knows that. She's the only one who sees it from both sides. It's really telling that both Errol Fane and Minya think the same of the other. Mm. They've just had to compartmentalize so much in order to successfully wage a war on the imagined oppressor. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I guess in Errol Fane's case, the actual oppressor. But Minya, who is a child locked in trauma, can only see him as an oppressor, even if he has not said boo to her for 15 years. It's not related to solitude or knowledge of things, but I just really sat with the idea of forgiveness. Like, what does it mean to forgive? Because Sarai says, you know, it's a violence that can never be forgiven. And then the next minute she's like, she she said she could never forgive, but it would seem she already had. And she flushed with confused dismay. Hmm. It was one thing not to hate and another to forgive. It's not about them. When we forgive somebody, it's not about absolving them. It's about how we 
approach it. It's about what we are doing to put that feeling to bed. Yeah, because there's that whole thing about if you don't forgive someone, it's like, what is it? It's drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah, which I mean, sometimes, yes. I don't think that forgiving someone means you don't hold them accountable. I don't think that forgiving people means that you can't expect them to do better or that you owe them anything or that you have to let them back in if they've hurt you. But it does mean that you're not going to hang on to it as a an ongoing hurt. You're going to say, I've left this behind. I've let this go. I think that is, you've really hit the nail on the head there. It's not a return to the status quo. It's mm. not being like everything is going back to how it was before whatever happened that necessitated my forgiveness. It's this idea of being like, this thing has happened. I'm going to forgive it so that I can move on with my life. This yes. is what I need to do. Yeah. Because you see this often with like terrible traumatic events, like often with mass shootings, a family will come out and they'll forgive the person who did it. And I just think that is incredible. Yeah. It's just, yeah, that's really intense. Yeah. And that's the, the difficulty, I think. You know, we've spoken about it a lot, I think, reading this book because it's come up. I don't remember it previously, but it's come up a lot, this idea that people are grey. Mm. It's good and bad. And therefore, you know, sometimes you need to leave space for people to be redeemed and people will do terrible things. But does that mean you write them off as a human being? Reading this book, that is the lesson that's really jumping out to me is this idea of being like recognizing the humanity in other people, regardless of what horrible things might be happening. And also this idea of like, how can I help? Whether it's not necessarily helping someone who did something terrible, but helping the people who have suffered as a result of that. Because that's yeah. what Laszlo does, right? He always starts from the position of how can I help? Yeah. It's really wholesome. I really love that. My like favorite thing is that he's just like, what can I do? What will I do? How can I help? Do you need me to get stuff for you? I'll run halfway across the city to do it. You need spirit? Have some spirit. Like he just is a helpful person. Yeah. And both him and Sarai just have bucket loads of empathy. Like Sarai's depth of empathy just takes my breath away. Like even when she observes watches over but not watches over Errol Fane you know <laughs> she talks about how she thought he was a ruin of a man like a cursed temple still beautiful to look at the shell of something sacred but benighted within and none of the ghosts could ever cross the threshold yeah yeah it's remarkable that she sees him for what he is I wonder though because churches can be reconsecrated temples mm. can be rebuilt I mean I you know I was just looking through some photos of my trip to Cardiff and um, Glendaff Cathedral is one of my favorite places that we went to and it was bombed it was blitzed so there's like big chunks taken out of the bricks on the side but you know the church is still there and I was reading about um because I was thinking about solitude that we elect you know solitude that we choose so I was reading a little bit about Julian of Norwich who's one of the like famous Christian mystics of England and she's a woman who is an anchoress which basically means she was like walled into a tiny room in a church and she would like give advice, but she mostly like prayed. Sort of like a nun or a monk who didn't like belong to an order. She just belonged to like mm. the church and she answered only to the bishop. So Julian of Norwich wrote something called The Divine Revelations of Love, I think, um, which is actually a beautiful treatise on like God not being a finger wagging, I will punish you, but more like everything that God did was out of love and Jesus is the mother and the father. And like theologically, it's fascinating. But I think about anchoresses a lot. Like here are people, here are women especially who choose to answer to nobody and live by themselves in seclusion, solitude. And so I was thinking about that in terms of Errol Fane being a ruined temple. I just mm, kept thinking about like, who is, it? does that mean that Azarine is the anchoress for that temple? Yeah. Waiting outside, walled within, but not in the temple, but right next to it, walled up waiting. It's such an interesting image because she is, yeah, she's, she's in isolation. She creates mm. the solitude for herself where she's waiting essentially for him, right? So yeah. And her pain, her misery was what sparked 
him to action. Yeah. Where was that line? I'll find it and I'll read it. Page 376. Theirs wasn't the only love story ended by the gods, but it was the only one that ended it. Yeah. Their love was the only one powerful enough to actually end the Mazartham. Like, their love saved Weep. Yeah, and page 377, love was no match for what burned in Errol Fane when he heard Azarine's first scream. That's what pushes him to fight up against, you know, as a goal, and it's just... Oh, it makes my heart hurt. Mine too. Azarine's my favorite for a reason. Sarai also living in the solitude of this knowledge, like having carried this, having carried everyone's pain, having carried the pain of the carnage and Minya's kind of wrath. She sits in all of the stuff and, you know, the only one she can really share that with is Minya, but Minya lacks the empathy that Sarai has cultivated mm. because she understands the humans. So she is completely isolated in this. Yeah. Even though she's forgiven Errol Fane, she still grieves for her her dead family you know yeah she says on page 374 she could never be free of the fester her own mind would always be an open grave i love that that's like she makes a choice there to protect laszlo's innocence in a way doesn't she 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 doesn't tell him everything she withholds a specific knowledge so that she's not going to mar him she's not going to hurt him in that way because he is very sensitive and she's aware of that like her empathy even extends to telling him all of the things errol fane has done but not showing him like she says nothing mm. would induce her to drag that fester memory into this beautiful mind yeah so she again she chooses to just sit in this horror on her own the same way that Errol Fane chooses to sit in his horror on his own when he could share that with Azarine and you know a burden shared is a burden halved exactly but he doesn't think he's worthy I think maybe that's why he and Laszlo have that understanding because neither of them felt worthy. Mm. Errol Fane had to make a massive sacrifice in order to save his people. And Laszlo's entire, you know, ethos is how can I help? Like this is his defining personality trait is what can I do to be of assistance? What can yeah. I do to help a worthy and noble cause? So they're very similar in that way too. It's got to be weird to like sort of be crushing on your crush's dad though. He's just devoid of strong role models. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Suhela for being like able to take this horrible news though. Holy moly, that woman is tough. Yeah, she's amazing. She holds it together. The other two are kind of like falling apart and she just mm. kind of gives Laszlo the information that he needs. Well, she has the knowledge, but not the lived experience of the things that happened to her. Mm. So I think that that, even though she's got the same dread and fear that everybody in Weep does, she's able to kind of go, right, okay, what's the next step? Yeah. And she also has this, I think, very wise quote where she says to Laszlo, you know, it's not that simple. There's no way you could understand the hate. It's like a disease. And I think we definitely see that in Minya, right? It's not, It's it festers mm. and it infects others. It's not just a thing that they feel. It's a living, breathing thing, this hate. Yeah. I think in terms of our other theme of knowledge, I think in this section there was, again, we've seen it in previous sections, but we see this idea of a difference between knowing something, mm. like having the knowledge, and actually understanding something. Oh, yeah. So it comes up a couple of times with Laszlo where people are like, Laszlo, it's not that simple. Like, yeah. Sarai says that to him. Shuela says that to him. And Sarai also says to him on page 371, you know, I'm not a ghost, Sarai said to his great relief, but I am God's pawn. And you must see that there's a difference between being alive and having a life. I just love that. I love this idea of like, Laszlo is such a dreamer that he sort of gets lost in his head of being like, oh, this is a thing and this is easily solved. And yeah. people try to bring him back to earth being like, it's not that simple. Yeah, we can't really fix it. I feel like he should know what it's like to be alive but not have a life because the first 13 years of his life he lived like in a monastery where he was basically to be seen and not heard. I just think he's got his head just lost in dreams. Like he he is, he is believes in fairy tales. He believes in magic. He's strange the dreamer. So you know on page 370 he says Laszlo couldn't fathom it. A goddess that a goddess would be willing to give up her magic. And 
Of course you can't. It just wouldn't occur to you because you are just, it's not who you are, right? It's not the the world you occupy. Yeah. And I really love that. I I love that they're kind of opposites in that way is that Sarai has really been, she's been carrying around all of this misery and unhappiness. She's like not grumpy small, but she's like sad small and he's like sunshine tall. I love that she gets to kind of balance out some of his wonder with the grim reality, but he gets to give her that hope that she just doesn't have. He describes himself as having something that others, I don't know where, I didn't write this down, but he describes himself at one point is having something others don't have an open mind and I think that is so important I think that was when he was talking to Thion wasn't it oh yeah, he was maybe. yeah um did you like the bit with the Mahalath I thought that was really telling yeah I like that I think it was really interesting well not really because it, it really fit the you know that Laszlo would choose to become blue yeah I'm like, of course because you'd want to be it's magic. the mystery and I loved when he said he you know he describes himself as having patience for mysteries <gasps> that was one of my favorite bits because he has waited so long to find out what happened to weep and now he's here getting answers day by day so he really does have this positive reinforcement of if I'm patient Mm. good things will happen I just yeah I really love that Sarai had no like she'd never met someone so willing to find the good in something like that really stuck out to me that that he was you know a a dreamer in whose mind the best version of the world grew like seed stock Mm, I love that as well Mm. it's interesting that that's what Sarai loves about him and arguably what Thion hates about him (laughs) yeah But it's about what you need, right? Like, there are certain people who might be just like you. And I think that probably Sarai and Thion have a lot in common in that they've been given these very strict requirements and they've been raised by people who have expectations of them that they have to subvert or avoid or chafe against in whatever way. I mean, that's certainly true for Thion, whose father was more worried about wealth and the saving of the kingdom than he was about his son's own well-being. And and Sarai, you know, has been raised to think of humans as the enemy, the them versus us. So Hmm. I don't know. There was one thing I didn't enjoy about about Laszlo mm. and that was on page 380 when he says to Sarai I hope you'll let me be in your story I did not like this he's like he says the full quote is I think you're a fairy tale I think you're magical and brave and equi- exquisite and I hope you'll let me be in your story which you know yes I get that it comes from a good place but also this is not a story this is her life and for me him describing it as like I hope you'll let me be in your story is a trivialization of it oh really it made it feel less somehow mm. because he gets lost in the fantasy and this is the stakes are too high for this to be a fantasy yeah I guess probably because I've just seen Hamilton and like I've had it stuck in my head since Uh. then I keep thinking (laughs) about the narrative like the concept of the narrative and like the end of it when Eliza puts herself back into the narrative and like takes over the legacy I love the idea of ourselves having a reflexive narrative and like what that Mm -hmm. means for our consciousness and humanity and souls and all of that so I thought of it more as like a what you're constructing of your life I want to be part of yeah that's a kind of reading it is a bit but I think I am I am the kind of person who uses books and poems as proxy for feelings a lot of the time. Like I do think that's what Laszlo means. Like I think earlier he also says, you know, I think you're a poem. Yeah. And I think he does he's trying to he's trying to situate Sarai in the way that he sees the world, which is through fairy tale. Yeah, because he's and that when that's he, his love. When right? he gets embarrassed, he's like, Oh, well, I'll revert back to stories, like because that's what I know yeah. how to do. But I just know that if I was in Sarai's position, uh Slytherin Jen would have been like, My life is not a story. Get out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Have a nightmare or two. Get out. 
<laughs> I like that he was asking though. Like even though he asked in a way that might not be across the board great. The fact that he was like, I hope you'll let me be part of it is way more like it's really mm. nice because he was sort of saying like, I want to be part of your day. And like he even admits to himself, he's like when he when they got to the cusp and he could see the scope of how big the world was and he wanted to see more of it. He wanted to see the fullness of the world with her. He woke up and mm. he was like, I got to get this girl out of this. I can't just go and get one of the silk sleighs myself. That's crazy. But I really want to. I want to go rescue her right now. Mm-hmm. But you know, like it's it's incredible the way he immediately reframes it to be like, I need this person in my life. I need to include this person. I want this person yeah. to be part of what I'm doing. Well, it's nice. He respects consent, which is good. We love consent. Consent is important. Yes, there was a big moment of consent when they were about to kiss. They were doing the looking thing and checking in with each other. It was still very romantic. Let this be a lesson. You can check in with people and read their body language. And I love there's a description on page 395 where it says he held a goddess in his mind as one might cup a butterfly in one's hand keeping it safe just long enough to set it free so it is this idea of that you know he doesn't want to own her or instrumentalize her he's trying to to free her yeah come sleep in my dreams you'll be safe that was so lovely as well she was so shocked that someone would want her in their dreams but beautiful i mean he's been blushing and hanging out with her and holding her hands and looking at her like she hung the moon for hours now so yeah i just yeah i love this combination of their solitude and their solitude kind of being a foundation for how they can connect but then that idea of being alone together i really just loved yeah because he did describe all that he wanted to take her places like go to a library and both of them read like it wasn't all intense together all the time it was just living a life side by side Hmm. i refer again to the the third thing essay by i want to say donald hall married to poet jane Kenyon, about how marriage is about the third thing like you look outward toward a third thing such a great essay i need to start memorizing bits of it so i can actually quote it because i think about it all the time it's so lovely indeed um did you have any in-depth marginalia you wanted to go into this week i did let Mm. me just get it okay so yes i did have some in-depth marginalia i was kind of tossing up between two but i've settled on one and it is Mm. on page 402 and it is when they're in the nightmare so scathus has turned up there he's shaking the room and you know sarai and laszlo have kind of forgotten that it's a dream because the fear has sort of permeated the whole experience and sarai is really scared that he's going to take laszlo away and she is going to experience this horrible feeling that all these people of weep have experienced before and then on page 402 she has this moment where it's almost because she's so afraid of Laszlo being taken that she's split into two and it brings her back to herself and she says this was just a dream and as long as she knew that she wouldn't be powerless in it all fear washed away like dust in a rainstorm you are the muse of nightmares Sarai told herself you are their mistress not their thrall I really love this um, because it's Sarai remembering her power Mm. of course which is great and I think it reminded me of our theme because there is the solitude that comes in sleep and, and in dreams right you are at your own mercy you are at the mercy of your own mind um, and you only have yourself to rely on so it reminded me of solitude yeah. and it's also knowledge it's the knowledge of self that empowers you it's like knowing who you are and knowing what you're capable of and wearing this as a protection of a way yeah and it reminded me of labyrinth <gasps> My all-time favorite movie. Yeah, you know when she says, through dangers untold and hardships unnumbered, I have fought my way here to the castle beyond the goblin city. To take back back the child you've stolen from me. (laughs) For my will is as strong as yours and my kingdom kingdom is great. great. You have no power power over me. me. 
Yeah. You know, that's the same thing as the reclamation of power because yeah. Sarah in that entire film is wandering around. She's scared. She doesn't know what's going on. Jared's being weird. And it's the fact that she kind of acknowledges a power that allows her to, to triumph in the end. I suppose it's the same thing with the Princess Bride, you could argue, like power. It's acknowledging your own power that you can overcome these difficult things. And for me, it's sort of also in, in my own life, it reminded me of um, depression. You mm. know, I don't want to say this trite thing of, you know, think positive and mind over matter and you'll get through it because yeah. it's not that simple. No, it's but not. there is power in knowing that you can survive something just because you've survived it before. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same way that Harry can cast the Patronus and Prisoner of Azkaban because yeah. he knows he's done it before, right? And I often, when I am having a depressive episode, I'll be like, okay, you can recognize where you are and you can recognize that you've done it before. So therefore you will be okay. And I think Sarai just claiming this moment and being like, you know, as long as she knew this, she wouldn't be powerless in it. I think that's just, it's incredibly helpful. And keeping that in mind can really get you through difficult situations. Yeah, yeah. I really love that. Gotta remember that. Especially since you brought up The Labyrinth, because I love that movie. Um, how about you? Did you have an in-depth marginalia? I did. I had. I was tossing it between two. I always like to have a backup in case we pick the same one. <laughs> but I think the one I'm going to go with today is on page 364. Laszlo didn't press her. He had patience for mysteries. And this is sort of in the conversations that they're having in the beginning when she has like kind of slipped a few times and said, we, she hasn't wanted to betray the other Mazartham children. But at the same time, she really wants to connect with Laszlo. So she keeps kind of messing up. And he just is like letting this slide. The greater context is that he really wants to gain her trust because he likes her and he wants to help her. And I think there's something about the solitude of being a mystery that can be a bit removing. Mm. Like I was thinking about that in terms of like oh like in that moment before they know each other he's very fascinated by her but when she wasn't a real person Mm. oh this blue goddess that I invented or whatever but as soon as he understands that she's real he wants to get to know her so I think that there's like wanting that knowledge of her now that he knows she's a real person so the knowledge enables the wanting of more knowledge but it's also breaking the solitude of he doesn't want to intrude but he definitely wants to get closer he wants to be part of that trusted circle yeah and I was thinking about in terms of like how this relates to other things I am the kind of person who always wants to know I want to know the end of the story I love spoilers I don't want to get caught out watching something or reading something that's going to hurt me yeah because I'm really sensitive so I just like I'm Mm -hmm. I want to know but there are some things that I need to be able to trust and have the patience for mystery so I'm trying to remember that like it's okay to maybe not know before I experience something and yeah that's I've just been thinking about the way that I approach all of the literature in my life is like, oh, I tend to buy from the authors I've already read or like from their recommendations or if a friend recommends something to me, I'll get it that way or that I really struggle with like just diving into something completely different and new without prior knowledge or recommendations. So maybe I'm going to try and be a little bit more patient with mysteries in my own life and embrace the idea that I don't have to know right now. I can wait and see how things go. Oh, that's such a good thing to be called to do. It's definitely something I need to do more of as well. So it's a good reminder. Yeah, it's a struggle. Having to let go of control is really super tough. Really is. That was actually going to be my other marginalia that I was considering doing today. Oh, really? (laughs) 
my other one was about the dichotomy of was Errol Fane a butcher or a hero or both. Oh, yeah. So I felt like that was a really poignant one. We did cover that already when we talked about like how evil is, you know, multifaceted. Yeah. Anyone can perform acts of heinous evil. So. And history is written by the victors, right? So if evil mm. can be framed however you need it to be framed. As we well know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, who would you like to spotlight this week? So this week I'm definitely spotlighting our beautiful Sarai Mm. because of her incredible depth of empathy, just what she is capable of experiencing and like walking in the shoes of others. I know she does it literally through her moths in a way, but still she puts herself through that and she doesn't shy away from that. And I think that's incredible. And then she sits in the discomfort of forgiveness because forgiveness is not an easy thing, especially when you've been hurt deeply, being able to forgive people is a hard thing to do. And she's sort of only just realizing, even though she said she could never forgive it, she's already forgiven it. And I think that's a hard thing. And I just, to anyone who is going through that or is forgiving someone despite having suffered, I think props to you, it's difficult. Thank you. I love Sarai also. She's so wonderful. Yeah. She's trying her best. Oh, she is trying her best. (laughs) Are you also going to spotlight her? (laughs) I'm going to spotlight Laszlo because I think there is a real lack of good men in fiction. We were actually Mm. kind of joking about this this week when you were like, hot evil guy. And I was like, no, the boy with the bread every time. No, evil guy every time. (laughs) We were kind of joking about it like... I mean, I get it. I get the appeal of the hot evil guy. You're about to read the Shadow and Bone series, right? That's Yeah, yes. I like, just started the second novel, hence my breakdown over the hot <laughs> evil guy. I've never wanted to date or marry or make, like, I wouldn't mind making out with the evil guy occasionally, but like, I just want to be friends with and marry <laughs> the good guy. I want the guy, I want the boy with the bread. So I'm spotlighting Laszlo because he is so careful and he's so enchanted by Sarai. Like, he just is excited to get to know her and he's just like, I will wait. I will be patient. Like, whatever you can give me, I will gladly take care of and accept. Like, he's just so gentle. And like, he's not a weirdo kind of lingering around looking at girls. Like, he's friendly with actual human women like Calixti. So, I mean, it's not like he's completely incapable. Yeah. He just hasn't had the opportunity. But he's just humaning in a really good way. And I really appreciate that. And I especially mm. love that there are men out there who are Laszlo's. And for all of you, like, keep doing it, man. Like, I love that. Be soft. Yeah. And send me an email because, hey. <laughs> Don't email Gen V because she only likes you if you're hot and evil. So... <laughs> that is not true. I would just like, in my defense, I would just like to say the problem with nice guys in fiction often, often in YA, when it's mm. like, oh no, who will they choose? The childhood best friend or the hot evil guy? I'm like, how is this a choice? Because the hot evil guy is a thousand times more interesting than the boring childhood friend. Like not enough has been put into developing that friend into being a reasonable choice. He's usually just like some guy who's hanging around who hasn't noticed the protagonist until the hot evil guy wants her. And then he's like, no, no, what about me? I'm like, who are you? I don't know you from a loaf of bread. You have no special powers. You are just boring. Like, that is my issue. Controversial answer. Everyone date everyone. Yeah, everyone. Get in. Stop being so possessive. Let's all just have a great time. So that is my issue. It's not like that I think the hot evil guy is automatically better. I just think he's better, better formed. He's more interesting. Yeah, look. This comes down to like the would I like them in real life? Like, for example, Snape, what a fantastic character. As a human, no, I want to be a thousand miles away from that guy at all times. Like, restraining order for Snape, he's the worst. But as a character, fascinating. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get, yeah. Yeah, I can appreciate the guys in fiction who are extremely hot and evil, but I don't want them anywhere near me in real life. 
Oh god, that said, because I've just read Shadow and Bone, I would much rather be friends with the Darkling than with Mal, I'm just saying. For Mal and Alina specifically, it's the forged in trauma thing. Like, they were each other's rock for so long that a life with anyone else seems incomprehensible. Yeah, fair enough. It's just not for me. (laughs) That's okay. You just have to get later on in the series. Like, you gotta read The Six of Crows, because I think Kaz Brecker is your guy. Okay, cool. Well, I'm persevering. I was going to read this on the plane, by the way, and now I'm like halfway through book two, so that's going well for me. Oh, good. Well, I've, I've stopped reading book one because I wanted to chat to you about it, so I'll finish that up and get started on book two. And then I'm going to read Mr. Impossible so I can vet it for you because I love you and I don't want you yes, to be Yes, thank upset. you. Because, yeah, and I don't want to be spoiled, so I'm not going to Google it, but I just need to know. I just need to know. I understand. Okay, so that's my rant about hot guys. I love it. I'm here for your rants. I love I love provoking you into your rants because they're always so funny. <laughs> Yeah, so next week we'll be reading chapters 49 to 51 through the theme of survival. So that'll be cool. Week eight, man. I know, it's crazy. I'm just not really ready to let go. This book has really done a number on me unexpectedly. This is what I wanted. (laughs) This is my evil plan. Well, thank you so much for another very insightful conversation, as always. I am so glad we do this. Thank you for plotting with me. It's always my favorite part of the week. Jinx. Definitely my favorite part too. All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Great. See ya. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed it, we'd love if you'd subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. Your support means the world to us. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. Many of the things we've mentioned are in the show notes, or you can find out more about us and the podcast at marginaliapod.com.